0: hey jamie how are you i'm well is the audio clear the audio is perfectly clear we can't see you though do you want us to see (laughs) you know sometimes some people are like no i don't want to don't want to be on camera and then i I always think that they are hiding something until i see them and then i go oh no it's maybe it's better you switch off your camera
1: hey like (laughs) whom (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so please he's just, just clarify like so, whom exactly uh,
0: Jamie just uh, while we've got you and before Pumi rejoins us uh, what are your first thoughts on Tito's budget and what, how's it man um, how, how do you think it's um, it's turned out because there seems to be a good reaction from the market um, I saw some of the opposition party comments uh, about the budget and they, they're usually the most critical it seems that most people are more or less happy with him he's got a tough job though don't you think
1: Well, I think the job is tough. And I think the feedback has been good broadly. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people were happy that, you know, uh, company tax and uh, income tax are going down somewhat, and that that's going to give them a bit of breathing room. I think what this does for me is it opens up space for a live experiment around this idea of the trickle down economy. Right, because we've heard all this time that you know, if you give companies these these breaks during times of recession, they are going to redirect um, those benefits towards you know um, you know employees towards uh, purchasing stuff that will then um, you know reignite the economy, so to speak. So I think he's gone for that um, ideological approach in terms of economical philosophy. And now we'll have a year to see whether or not this actually did translate to more, you know, employment, more purchasing, more, you know, economic uh, activity, because that's always been the premise. Um, I don't think that it's going to hold up as optimistically as, as people do, because here's the thing about our, global environment. It's a consumerist environment. Mm -hmm. And what normally happens is that when you give companies more leeway in terms of their tax, uh, you know, burdens, et cetera, normally Mm -hmm. the executives get a lot of pay cuts, you know, not pay cuts, sorry, a lot of bonuses Mm -hmm. Bonuses, and, and that kind of thing. And then it doesn't actually go back to the employee, the general employee. So we may not necessarily see you know, increased purchasing activity but as a result of this. I'm inclined to. Because some of the people were.
0: So I'm inclined to agree with you because, we're in big corporations, that's the case. But big corporations are no longer the most important part of this economy, and we've got to look at small businesses. And they've had the most horrible year imaginable, and and you know, small businesses don't just sit on a board, the executives anyway, and vote themselves extra money. Small businesses are all about survival, and many have not survived um, during lockdown. And, and you know, we've had you on the show before, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on what might work better and what kind of a system you think we might need in this country that we do, you know, the trickle-down economics, as you put it, won't give us. But it's small businesses that are not there to, um, to just insanely divert profits into their own pockets. Small businesses are really like about people who are trying to subsistence live more often than anything else. And in South Africa, the only way that we could stimulate the economy and get people employed is by small businesses. I don't think there's anyone who disagrees with that idea. And if that's the case, then one of the ways that the government can help is by staying out of the way and by trimming their involvement down to an absolute bare minimum so that there is some extra money around for people to buy stock or to work out transport arrangements for themselves and their staff or to – uh, help bring in a new person because they need to expand some part of the shop or whatever. We are talking about small businesses. We're not talking, these big corporations, nothing's going to change. They're already in cahoots with Tito and the government anyway. You know, they, they're already kind of on the government side in terms of, of, of economic policy. And we know this because they keep telling us how good their relationship is with government.
1: Yeah. So look, I, I think um, we don't necessarily have enough there for small business because, Part of the problems that exist for small business have been the lack of support. I think one of the uh, well-reported-on stories was how little of that small business relief that was ring-fenced for them actually did wind up going to them because the banks gave small businesses so many hoops to jump through to access that funding. And that, to me, struck me as a government that was saying all the right things, but not necessarily directing themselves towards solving the issue quite well. So I think that a lot of businesses, small businesses in particular, need some runway to keep in business, to keep stores open, to keep their employees, you know, uh, retained. And that may actually require revisiting that allocation of um Funding to them, because the reason why you give small businesses loans is to allow them to leverage to access the market and multiply that through a profit effect. And then when they pay back the banks and, you know, pay their providers, what you then have is this net positive effect where you've created wealth. That's the whole premise of business lending. And it doesn't look as if the banks really came to the party because a lot of these small businesses don't have the same you know financial track record paperwork and brand recognition as the big companies so it looks like all of the big companies um were able to access funding access relief but the small businesses i mean if only i think 17% if my if my number is correct yeah, about 17% some... of oh. that funding went the allocated 200 billion or 17 billion right. off it. I can't remember which one it is, but that's low.
0: But the point, Jamie, is, and, and this is where I need your, your help a, a little bit. The point is there's, there's not a lot that government can do. You know, we have this, this weird idea in our heads that government can create an economy and can sustain an economy and can grow it, almost as if they have magic powder that they sprinkle over things and then it you know suddenly springs to life and becomes this amazing uh, involved, complicated market it doesn't government can do only a few things they can raise taxes they can lower taxes in a time like this where there's a crisis they can stimulate by putting money back in or they can create more regulations which obviously complicates things or take away some regulations which makes things easier and there's this weird balancing act they have to do with labor as well because the governments are obviously in bed with the unions so what system might work better in, in your opinion?
1: Well, I think in this case, right, we're looking at a space where government actually did have the capacity to infuse capital into a cash distressed small business sector. Mm. And they had committed to do that with that $200 billion that they said, this amount of money is going to go through two small businesses right. through the banking system. But what it looks like is that there wasn't really an, a consideration and an application of that to say, every rand of that assigned money needs to go in because it was part of this 500 billion relief package. Mm. Now that's an instance, you know, as much as everyone who is a free market thinker uh, loves the free market, they appreciate the role of government in terms of one making fair regulation to you know take away bad actors number two you know to create a conducive environment sometimes through you know lowering interest rates sometimes through raising interest rates sometimes through providing liquidity to the market all of these things are support effects of the government which don't necessarily reduce um the 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 freedom of the market you want to have a playground with structure to some degree before you just um, say no, no government, no government, no government. So the question really in my mind is, has government done enough to support the small businesses? And the litmus test for me is that lack of uh, small business relief being given out. Right.
0: Well, let's let's welcome Pumi to the conversation. Uh, well done, Pum, on being a mom and uh, running your own business this morning and being part of the show. Uh, you're exactly the kind of person that Jamie and I are talking about. Um, As a small business owner, you can speak to this, too. What would you like government to do? A, stay out of your way, B, increase or decrease your taxes, C, make more or less legislation and regulation around small businesses, Um, or or D, stimulate by giving you capital like they promised they would do when the Solidarity Fund was established. Are any of those or some of those or none of those the kinds of things that will help you in your business?
2: less tax and less regis- legislation. Right. You know, I think, right. the, unfortunately, the thing with legislation is that it... Um, the whips and chains that they thought would would kind of pull back mm. big business are exactly the things that weigh down small business because it's it, it's all the same processes, you know? Um, and the, the legislation requires so many things that a small business owner has you spend more time getting through all of that legislative crap than actually yeah. doing the stuff that you're supposed to do. It's the worst thing, I think, for small business owners. So you kind of...
0: Having having said that, and, and Jamie and, and I, Pums, are of a mind at the moment that mostly the, the, the budget was a, a really clever balancing act. A, a couple of things that we need to take note of. So capital yeah. gains tax didn't go up. There wasn't any new personal income tax. In fact, there was some relief for certain brackets. There was a a 1% decrease in the company tax, which is interesting. Of course, the two areas where they have looked at increasing are the SIN taxes, which are always worth discussing. And maybe the two of you have some interesting opinions on those. So we'll get to SIN taxes in a second. And the other place that they've increased is the fuel levy, which is obviously for the um, road accident fund, which is bankrupt and has been for a while and is a disaster. Um, for various reasons. It's been mismanaged horribly, but also South Africans drive badly. And we do have a lot of problems with uninsured drivers on the roads and so on. So the taxes and the fuel levy are the two places they did increase. What do you think of that? taxes? Let's go with that one first. Jamie, you want to have a go?
1: Look, I don't have a problem with the taxes being increased. I actually think that You do need to reduce um, some consumption behavior of alcohol. I think raising the price does create uh, a limitation to a certain degree, not for addicts, not for hardcore alcoholics, but for the people in the middle. Because the addicts will buy at whatever price, even if you say 100% increase, they would still buy. But they are those social drinkers who... may be in communities where that social drinking leads to adverse effects and you want to reduce it. Um, Mexico at some point introduced um, tax on sugar, and they were doing so to reduce the consumption in the communities where, you know, there was high levels of diabetes, obesity, because people were substituting Coca-Cola for you know, healthier options and using it as an energy drink whilst they were working these long shifts. And they did have a reduction somewhat to in, in, in the prevalence of those diseases in those communities, particularly diabetes. But the interesting thing was the note around why that money was being increased. It was for general purposes of government, you know, as governments, we were doing it to increase revenue. And that's not normally the function of a syntax. A syntax is supposed to be used towards offsetting the health impact Mm -hmm. of alcohol consumption. It's supposed to make sure you have more doctors in the trauma wards, more uh, health programs directed at addiction in the communities which are most adversely affected. So it's not just, hey, we're punishing you for a moral act we don't approve of. The name is just unfortunate. It's actually you as a taxpayer participating in a harmful and deleterious habit, um, then create healthcare risks and healthcare chronic costs, which we have to offset somewhere. So it would be unfair for a non-alcohol consuming taxpayer to pay for diabetes treatment or heart treatment or whatever the treatment Correct. may be as a result of adverse consumption. So the tax is supposed to direct directly link to healthcare provision and healthcare support. But what we saw in the note was, oh, this is just for general revenue, fundraising, so to speak. And to me, that that made me query whether or not that should be the approach to this particular tax. Because, of course, you are going to raise a lot of money. This is a very popular substance in South Africa. (laughs) But there needs to be a direction and a connection between the consumption of alcohol and the health interventions directly linked to the consumption of alcohol, as well as the social yeah. policing intervention. It's,
0: it's interesting, like you say, there are a couple of things here, and Jay says, yeah, what Jamie's saying, because government should be making decisions on behalf of adults. You know, there is this idea that we, we want to, at the same time, do two things. We want to, at the same time, trust our people, who are the people who vote, by the way. They're also the people who drink. Um, we want to trust them to be able to make their own decisions. In other words, individual sovereignty, uh, more of a libertarian approach to things. But at the same time, we want to tell you what's good for you. And we want to help you with your health because clearly you can't look after yourself. We've got this dichotomy in South Africa where we can't decide which side of the fence we're on. Either you let people be and you don't involve yourself in social engineering of any kind, or you socially engineer and then you don't trust the people who voted for you to make those decisions on their behalf. It's a very complicated thing to do and Jay, we don't know the answer, I don't think we're going to solve it in this show. But Pumi, what are your feelings on syntax? But I
2: think, you know, I think that that even though the, the budget was a balancing act, I watched some I watched some of the clips, I didn't watch the whole thing, mm-hmm. and, and I read some of the country afterwards. I think the one thing that we're not having a conversation about is how unimaginative our minister is. The only lever he has to pull is tax, you know, like reduce this tax, increase this tax. There, and and what we need now is we need a new way of thinking about how do we increase government revenue, how do we decrease government expenditure, and how do we. And, and how do we alleviate the strangleholds on the on, on the economy? Because that's you know. So in a small way, he's kind of going, okay, I'm going to reduce yeah. um, companies tax and I'm going to reduce the income tax. Well, uh, and I'm going to increase the, the the threshold in terms of personal taxes. But all of that is just you know, it's kind of like moving chairs. He's moving chairs, and the yeah. boat sinking. He, he, he has he, only. He needs.
0: He has only a few levers available to him right and and he's maybe he needs to think a little broader, but the fact is government can 't make government can 't make money; they have to take money from other people who have made money, so the economy is not in the hands of ministers and policy makers. the economy is actually in the hands of ordinary people who are trading on the ground. Everyone from the Spaza shop owner and the person who has the little caravan that makes mohodu on the side of the road, right up to the person who runs a multi-million dollar global international corporate uh, megastructure. These are all people who are participating in creating value. The only one that doesn't create value here is the one who takes, you know, depending on how much of a, of a personal tax and a company tax and all the other tariffs and now sin taxes and everything else that they can get out of you that is government and we haven't spoken about the spending side of things until you said that Pumi. me and the spending side of things is where the problem is because we know that state salaries are going up regardless of what the interest rates and the exchange i mean not the exchange rate the um the the the, the rate of of um what's the word i'm looking for uh i've just gone blank on an obvious thing man
2: What is it called? Inflation.
0: Inflation, thank you. Uh, Regardless of the inflation rate, those government salaries seem to have gone up year after year. We've obviously got the unions there agitating as well. And no one can be fired from government. No one can be fired. Tito can't trim the salaries of state employees. What are we going to do about it? Unfortunately,
2: it's because they're in bed with the unions. Correct. It's it's difficult when you have that kind of... um, insidious relationship that they have they, they they they're struggling with how do we how do we decrease our expenditure how do we decrease our salary bill but we have to keep we have to keep these irrelevant unions mm. uh happy because we need their votes what do you,
0: what do you think Jamie? what would you do if you were in charge of trying to cut costs in the state
1: well you know i think i i know the predominant um sentiment thinking about this and some of it is valuable and it's actually correct but my my real concern is that in this kind of an economy, you really cannot have um, massive reductions in the civil service, um, you know, sector in terms of like you can't remove 500,000 people from that sector because now you've got 500,000 people who need welfare, 500,000 people who are not necessarily going to become um, business people necessarily, you know, because it takes a while for people to find economic foothold in a in a competitive environment with a low customer. So, are we, so we going to
0: carry on giving so, them? Are we going to carry on giving them sheltered employment
1: then? So, so I think you you need to consider the pragmatics of why there is some value to doing that because they, they that money does go into the economy and purchases <laughs> the iPhones so, and all of these things. But, but having said that. I do think that there's an issue of the quality of service that you get from the civil sector. And I think that there's been um, complacency in improving the management of that sector and producing the the desired outcomes. Why why are
0: you giving such a light touch to government employees, but you're willing to be harder on companies that you see as being profiteering? I mean, why would you create a double standard in your head for these two kinds of work?
1: Well, I, I, I don't think that's what I said. I think I said that, you no, know, you, I, I you mean, someone seem, mentioned in you the seem comments to be, that the, you the seem, company you seem reduction to be, is
0: only... Yeah, but you seem to be saying that it's fine if we have all these people who are on the the, the, the taxpayer's dime because they're buying iPhones. But, you know... Well,
1: I, I think that's a simplification. So let me let me try to restate it, the It point is more or less what you said. Better. Yeah, try and, try and so, explain um, it better. So, so this is what I'm trying to say to you. I'm saying that Whenever you think of a policy proposal, and one of the policy proposals that is popular is that we need to reduce the size of the civil service, right? What I'm saying is you also need to consider the unintended effects of reducing the size of the civil service. Because let's say you, you were to do that and remove 500,000 people. You have now lost 500,000 taxpayers and gained 500,000 people who are going to now be applying for welfare from the state, do you understand what I'm saying? But they're already and the ear- they're already yeah. earning yeah. they're earning taxpayers' so, money already. So you say these are so yeah, but they but they participate in the economy to a certain degree. So the question really is is the unintended effect of losing five hundred thousand people from economic activity putting them into the welfare system better or worse? You save the money that you were paying them. But now you have 500,000 people that you need to add to the support system. So the, the, I, I hope the point is very clear because I don't want it to be misconstrued. Their economic activity is not only iPhones. This was just an example. No, no. It's buying groceries, it's sending kids to school, Baby, we, it's paying for fuel.
2: I have, I have a, let's, let's bring it down to, to a, a real and practical example. At the sapc for instance right at the sapc we know the numbers at the sapc we know that they are constantly needing bailouts and what we also know is that they have three managers for every two people employed at the sapc now is that a useful way of spending that money
1: so trimming down management is something i wouldn't be opposed to it's because not it's management it's,
2: it's not no management. you said they've got the three managers for and, every and the workers and the composition of the workers at the SAPC is such that and it does not necessarily mean that they are management it means that their salary level is at a particular management level right and I'm talking about outputs so I'm talking about the SAPC and the work that they do is it managing each other or is it producing stuff and if there are two producers and three people managing that is unsustainable that is unsustainable and we see that across Government institutions, whether it is SOEs, whether it is a Department of X, Y, and Z, that's what we we see a lot of. That we see a lot of people in offices pushing paper, and not many people actually producing service or delivering anything to the people. And sure, and those people, I think it's it's simplifying it too much to say that they are going to go to um into to a welfare environment. People have been working for however many years. They, you know, they should have savings. They should have pensions. They Should be able to go into, the, into that, um, space rather than saying that they're going to be. They're not going to be receiving three hundred and fifty rands from the government every month. That's not who they are.
1: Look, I don't think that um, the, the the economic conditions of South Africa such that many people have a lot of savings or enough to keep working in the in 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 a informal. Um, environment after they've been retrenched or whatever but to address the the, the question at the heart of your of, of your point is really that SABC is mismanaged and that it's not producing the outcomes that it is that it has to i think if netflix were looking at the asset of SABC they would buy it and turn it around because really they've produced a lot of local content that Netflix no, is not going haven't. to be able no, to they, produce they, in a long... they, they haven't. They, no, they, ha- they've, they have they've, they've produced... They have. They've they they, 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 they produced a lot of... Jamie, local I, content. I, I was
0: I was in the SABC for a long time. The, as Pumi says, that for every three people who are managing things there, there are maybe one or two who are producing... No, but, so I, but I'm they talking
1: about content. They have, yeah, not not not
0: they have not commissioned significant quantities. Pums, you used to be in TV too. They have not commissioned significant quantities of television or radio productions that cost them money for months and if they have it's probably soap operas so I don't know how much but, of that we but, need but my point if I were is net, if I went Netflix, i tell those. you something you would be a terrible CEO mm. of Netflix because if you decided to buy the SABC you'd be buying an empty vessel that has no no that's not true
1: uh, well no. so, so let me make the case for the CEO of Netflix a little bit because I've read his book Read Hastings and they're very pragmatic in their assessment of um, you know uh, things to buy in equity and whatever else so what i'm trying to put across here is that sabc as um storefront has had a lot of popular content over the last let's say 10 years let's not go too too back in time and that um brand equity still exists with the audiences i mean people still watch a lot of these legacy shows and people are living in the age of nostalgia they would love to go back to some of them have some of them revitalized so i think that when it comes to numbers which is what metric uh, the metric that netflix cares the most about SABC still has a lot of attractive um, data around the people of course, who are watching it on a of daily this, basis. All
0: of this, hypothetically, if the SABC were for sale, which it isn't because the government wants to be the only business that owns it. Uh, no, but just, my
1: point is just around just managing. Like, like right? It's like not really about
0: and, should it be sold or not.
1: No, but what you're saying for the so SABC is, say, is
0: true as well for all the other government
1: departments and all the other parastatals is none of them are run properly, yes, it's not just the SABC. Yes, and that's the problem. So so the solution that the market prefers, I think, is not the most well-thought-out solution. The market often says, privatize this, or reduce the workforce and assumes that by doing one of those two actions you improve the production output of those entities but the real problem is the management culture in those entities if you privatize the postal service today and inherited that whole workforce you still have the poor management no. culture and you still have the, you still have the workforce you won't be able to fire I'm, them so I'm, tomorrow And one of the and few- here's the thing
0: yeah, I'm one of the few people who's actually writing letters. I'm posting these today. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going via the post office at all. I'm getting a courier to deliver these. So I've already found a way around the. Pro- I don't need the post office, and so neither do you, and neither does Pumi. But I think, I
2: think, I think same with the SABC. I, I, I do think that what we, what we're getting at is that, for me, what we're seeing is we're seeing a single-minded way of solving these problems, whereas they they should be. Uh, there should be a broader for me a broader interrogation of what it is so it's not that i'm saying simply reduce or simply sell off there 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 must be a third way there must be a different way because we have not we have not yet uh looked into all the feasibilities of how do we change the situation we're in i mean he's increasing is increasing uh, kind of the welfare and the stipends that various people get, and that's great. It makes those people for the short term a little bit more economically viable and a little bit more active in the economy. However, we don't have an exit strategy. So you have 50 people getting 50 Rand today, and you have no way of getting those 50 people out of the system of stopping to get the 50 Rand and all that that's happening is every year, we've got 25 million people unemployed in South Africa. And this year, we've got 500,000 new matriculants and graduates all going into an environment that is a stagnant economy. Therefore, there will be no jobs for them. Therefore, they will be getting into the same queue that 25 million other people are in that is that is where my problems lie my problem is the fact that we have we have no plan besides the short term and our minister and and our minister hasn't thought that far he he really hasn't thought that far besides wagging his finger at us and saying we still owe lots of people lots of money yeah he,
0: <laughs> well what do you think of the of the debt? Because we are with the debt to GDP ratio is getting higher and higher and higher. And they say that, you know, it could reach levels which are untenable. Do you think that that's a problem? Or are you two of, of either the same or separate minds that this stuff doesn't really matter and countries can just keep on borrowing?
1: Well, I think it depends on the time and the context uh, of the borrowing. If the market fundamentals are still solid for a particular country, I wouldn't be overly concerned about how much they are borrowing if their fundamentals are in place. Because, you know, nobody really cares about America's debt to GDP ratio because they know that, you know, the U.S. dollar first and foremost is a dominant currency, too, that America as an econo- as an economy is still a vibrant, solid, large market, and it's fundamentals are solid so that's why they don't care about america for instance having that large debt to gdp ratio but for zambia when zambia started crossing the 30 percent mark what people started seeing is what it was unable to pay its commitments on the euro bonds as they matured and as a result of that zambia went into a debt crisis and you know um The currency started depreciating, inflation started accelerating, Mm. and you don't want those two things to happen. So the difference is that South Africa lies in between those two extremes. It lies in between the American model where the fundamentals are still solid and the Zambian model where there are no fundamentals that are solid. And that really lies, um, that really is the question is how much more can we absorb? before it gets to a critical point. Now, going back to what Pumi said a little bit earlier, there are some market stress signals that I worry about long-term because when you look at our education sector, you see that, uh, I mean, the minister basically massages those numbers as much as she can, but enough skilled graduates and enough um, potentially talented matriculants to attract the kind of jobs and opportunities that we need to to compete in the 4IR communi- economy to actually begin a road towards industrialization, which everyone agrees would need to happen at a higher rate in order for us to create some of the jobs that everybody hopes for. Because when you have effectively 250,000 students writing mathematics, but only 40,000 of those students doing well enough to continue with mathematics, that already shows you you're not gonna have enough computer science um, you know, students, enough engineering students, enough scientists, because you've got one little pool of people to fill all the degrees yeah, that maybe, are necessary for the maybe, modern maybe economy. Maybe what we
0: should do is we should stop subsidizing degrees in the arts or degrees in language or degrees in all of those things, and only subsidize from government side degrees in those places where we know we need people to have skills and jobs. Maybe that's something we could think about. And if you wanted to go and study art, then you can do that, but it's on your dime.
1: Well, some people have mooted that, right? And um, there could be more support that is offered towards kids in maths programs. That's 200,000. We're not getting enough of them performing at the right level. I mean, the pass mark, just using the 50%, and you can get this data from the diagnostic report, but it only comes out a few Mm. weeks after the results are announced. It will show you how many students got 50% to 60, 60 to 70, et cetera, et cetera. And only 20% of students get over 50% of the 260,000 who write mathematics. But when you look at how many got over 70%, which is level six, level seven, the people most likely to be accepted for university programs in those subjects you find five percent of the students who wrote the exam got that number that's not good that's, that's actually terrible. very very poor and um we may have to look at what extra support is required to make sure because these subjects are really difficult and if you start falling behind you almost get demotivated like either either you were great at maths or you went through hmm. some processes, but if you have a good teaching system, you know, if you start falling behind, they help you catch up and make maths accessible and easy again. But you can imagine in the public education system that there isn't enough infrastructure that would exist in a well, private school. for we instance can, We can start. Sometimes off. people have to go for extra lessons, etc.
0: Yeah, we could start off by t- Sorry? We can start off by taking away any bursaries for law or political science or any of those areas where you don't need any more people, you know, and start directing. Those, those kinds of things into areas where we do need more people, computer scientists, as you say, engineers, uh, applied sciences, uh, and people in business.
2: We can start by breaking the stranglehold that Satu has over the school system,
1: Even more, so important. that
2: we can teach better and we yeah. can teach children better. Then we have a better
1: foundation. So guys, yeah, I, it's just so hard to do that, you know? Well, it and, is, and but, like but, pragmatics. But,
0: but who's going to do it? What, what else is the point of a government really? You know, are they there to cut ribbons and to welcome vaccines into the country by meeting them at the airport, or are they there to break no, unions? But
2: it, it sounds like it is hard to do in a pragmatic, but actually it all it requires, it requires the will of the people. You know, the school governing body is still a very important part of the, the school system. And when parents relegate the duty of running this, their, their children's education, to the teachers and the mm-hmm. people over there at school and the Department of Education, then we are tight yeah. then we are tight but if but if the parents stand up for their children, if parents stand up for their children and stand up for their education, then we have a we have a better chance of breaking that stranglehold
0: so I just want to quickly throw this in here, and I know it 's controversial and it might irritate some people, but you know Tanzania has just pretended that coronavirus didn't exist. They've carried on. Their economy has been open from day one. I brought this up on my TV show last night. Their economy has been open from day one. They've never had a lockdown. Tourism has been thriving. Um, You know, Places like uh, Zanzibar have been uh, bubbling over with tourists. They've also seen a 5.8% increase in their overall economic activity for 2020, which is really impressive. I mean, to go up 5.8% in a year where most of the world went down, including this country where we went down by almost 8%, and some people are saying that could be higher. But um, but economic growth is on a decrease here. It's on an increase in Tanzania. And, of course, they might be lying about the number of people who've died because I don't believe for a second uh, that John Magafula is, is telling the truth when he says that mm-hmm. nobody's died since June of coronavirus in his country. But there is something to be said for just carrying on as usual, because this is a disease like other diseases in the history of humanity that we've managed to overcome through either ignoring it or applying various uh, strategies to it. But certainly one thing is, is clear is that South Africa's government have not made all the best decisions every step of the way and that some of their decisions around lockdown were completely stupid <laughs> and, uh, and and very capricious, to say the least. So what do we think of that comparison? Is it a fair comparison to make? Um, do we think that lockdown has done more harm than good, not just to the economy but to people's mental health, to people's livelihoods, to all those kinds of things?
1: Well, you know the the issue of um, let's call it the rest of sub-Saharan Africa and their COVID numbers is actually quite interesting, and I don't think there's been enough research on. The impact of COVID and why we had the difference that we had between South Africa and the rest, because uh, you'll find Egypt and South Africa and Algeria had similar COVID numbers. But mm. I mean, I'm looking at the official Tanzania stats here, which they do look a bit mass- massaged. <laughs> but they only say they've had 509 <laughs> infections and 21 deaths overall. Yes, which seems a little bit on the low side. Uh. But when you look even at countries like Ghana, which are being more honest with their data, they didn't have as many fatalities from COVID as as, you know, South Africa did. So in, in, in the context of um, comparing these African countries, there seems to be something I think that requires a lot more medical research and scientific research before we understand why was there such a discrepancy? But, the, but the economic,
0: and- the, the economic numbers are in. And, and while they might lie about yeah. the medical numbers, the economic numbers are in. And that shows that maybe the best strategy for the economy would have been, and maybe Tito was arguing this. We don't know in those NCCC meetings. Maybe the best strategy was just to leave people alone. Our numbers, well, I mean- our numbers may be massaged as well for all we know, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, people have said that the, you know, the, um- Excess deaths indicate that we may have had even more COVID deaths than people assume or are willing to admit. But I just want to say that, look, before we make the economic analysis, we just have to notice that the health impact was dramatically different because Ghana reopened first. They realized that there wasn't much of an impact. I mean, Tanzania never closed, but in Ghana, they realized there wasn't much of a public health impact because the the virus wasn't affecting them in the same way that it was affecting other parts of the world, you know, like Italy or South Africa, where multiple people were getting admitted in ICU for this uh, virus and dying and all that stuff. So they had the room to continue with their economic activity. I think a different question could be what economic activity did we restrict irrationally or unfairly in South Africa that adversely affected. So I think one of those examples, obviously, is the alcohol economy, where the rationality around the decisions at times didn't seem to coincide with the lived reality of um, the businesses and the impacts. Because on the one hand, you always have trauma wards that are full. And to 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 make the argument that we need these trauma doctors to be available while making the argument that we have all of these conference centers that we've made hospitals and that are yeah. specifically dedicated to this thing. We've I, got I, Cuban doctors. I'm sorry,
0: to, I'm sorry to rush you guys, but I, I, should, you know, I should have known we would go down this COVID path and it would, it would lead to a lot of discussion. <laughs> but we do have to look at some other things. And I don't want us to be stuck only in the economy and COVID because there are a lot of things that are more current, that are immediate, that we need to address. So, Jamie and Pumi, I want to hear your thoughts on what what Pumi's been paying, she she just loves this, the, the, the Zondo Commission. You're still into it, right, Pums? State Capture Commission? Dude,
2: I am I am still committed to the Zondo Commission and I think the developments over the past couple of weeks have been uh titillating to say the least.
0: So give us give us a bit of a pricey and tell us what you think is happening there.
2: This week I haven't been paying too much attention, but there is um, the two things that I think are top of mind for everybody hmm. is what is going to happen now with Umsholoz as we see a, a, a list, literally of people going to have tea over there. Yeah. And what happens next? You know, and, 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 and the people. Our president keeps. I'm not shocked,
0: and the he people keeps, leveling he charges keeps delivering they,
2: exactly they, what he's been delivering for three years they they say, they say no that decisions. there's um
0: there are two hundred and something witnesses that they've got lined up against uh, the former president, and yes, you're right about cyril but but do you also have things to say about like for example Prasa? because the, the you know the the whole Prasa story has been laid out in front of the Zonda commission this week, and they said that um there are people there who are defying summonses to appear too. Uh Aswal Mashaba apparently has admitted
2: And he's getting and he and he's been um the the judge has put out to the evidence leaders that they need to also for him a warrant of arrest because he has also not showed up and he in fact said he wouldn't show up. Which you you know that's that's the that's the precedent that the former president has set is he's just gone, meh, I'm not coming. Do what do what you must, do what you will.
0: And now other people. And so it's
2: emboldened more people to Hmm. say, Yeah, I'm also not going to show up.
0: What do you think of this, Jamie? I mean, you've been watching it too.
1: Well, to be honest, I've I've just always thought that there's nothing that we're gonna find out from this commission that we didn't already know. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to stop government corruption because whilst the commission was happening, <clears throat> we still had all of these uh, COVID-19, <laughs> um, you know, new forms PPE of capture companies tennis, being yeah. registered, uh, companies fumigating schools for 431 million that didn't exist two years ago with no health uh, experience whatsoever. No. So 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 for me while I watch it for sometimes for historical purposes and for um, the academic understanding of how has corruption been occurring uh, in government departments for this long period of time, uh, part of me is like, like, yes, we're going to find out about these things and we're going to get this guy. Maybe if he does show up, which I don't think he will, I think he's willing to take his chances with whatever is thrown at him. Um, So having looked at all of that, at the end of the day, if our aim was to get to a point where we craft public policy, which reduces the amount of capture activities downstream, the skeptic in me is thinking, what exactly here is going to lead to a policy that is actually going to reduce all of these, um, you know, what is it called? Rent seeking, tender behavior, tenderpreneurship, all of the stuff that still happened uh, even during a pandemic, you know? So how many, you, do you do a state capture commission every five years, spend a billion just to find out what you already knew with no legislat- legislation that changes anything? So there's a, there's a lot of skepticism in me, but when we look at the Zuma issue specifically, I have some concerns and these concerns are about social cohesion and nation building. They're not so much about, the legal uh, side of things because South Africa has had a fragile history. And sometimes we gloss over how delicate the early nineties were. We gloss over how there were a lot of power struggles in that period. And the IFP ANC battles that led to bloodshed, uh, sometimes don't get resuscitated enough for us to be cognizant of the delicate game that is being played here. So I think that, um, it does have to be treated with kid gloves. And I know that there's been a lot of people just saying, just arrest him, just, you know, do this, do that, do that. And I think those people don't pay close consideration to the dynamics of the the national project, the compromises of the national project, as well as Mm. even how and why Jacob Zuma ascended to power. I mean,
0: but really, Jamie, there's either the same law for everybody or some people need kid glove treatment and if we live in a world where there's kid glove treatment for some but not for all that's about as unequal as a society can get where the state is actually prepared to apply the law differently to different people that's no world that any of us want to live in right and i understand what you're saying practically we have to think about the damage that jacob zuma could do if he truly became uh, vicious but maybe we've got to just swallow that pill and as we discussed as we
2: discussed
0: you have it as we discussed the, the other day you think so, but The poems. damage
2: is bigger if he is if he is treated differently. The damage is actually bigger because that's what undermines the rule of law. If if he is treated differently, then suddenly politicians get treated differently. Suddenly, you know, then it's the drug lords get treated differently. Then it's no that it it, it has a bigger impact in that it undermines on a on a larger scale. And I think that at at this moment we are. Um, and and unfortunately, Jamie, I, I disagree with you that there is a, a, a fundamental uh rift to social cohesion that, that we're gonna see happen if anything is if, if Jacob Zuma is held to account. I really do not believe that there is that kind of support on a groundswell of support for people for Jacob Zuma. People are living hard lives. People don't and, give a shit. And about Pumi, Jacob as you Zuma. said, if he's people got people want work, people it, want to eat, people want to live a good life, people want to be safe. People don't care if mm-hmm. Jacob Zuma's coming to the Commission or not or if he's going to be arrested or not. They're not going to be out there fighting for it. And and, and I mean I think that the, the Commission has done has, has, has had a huge unintended consequence. And and that consequence has been that there is a fundamental shift in the psyche of the electorate about who they vote for and why they vote for them it may not be what they intended so i don't think that this thing was about policy change it may the the intention might be that we want to understand what went wrong so that there can be policy change but that is based on a premise that says the anc is coming back the next time around that they're going to still be in government
0: and you've said you've said two poems um that you think that it's time that Jacob Zuma just lets out the small Anyana skeletons he keeps threatening that he has. Like, so what? Now bring it. Now's your time to show us what you got.
2: Guys, 30 million South Africans live on less than 20 rand a day. Sure. 30 million South Africans. That, those 30 million people, I'm not thinking about Jacob Zuma and, and the commission, and the other thirty of the sixty million South Africans, the other thirty million, which is us, should worry about those thirty million that are living on less than twenty Rand a day because we are all in the same boat. It is unsustainable to yeah. have that number of people living so precariously day in and day out, and think that our lives are going to continue unaffected in the way that they that they've always been. That's what we should be thinking about. That's how we should be seeing. All of the machinations of states, and I really do think that the unintended consequence of the of the state commission has been to hasten the demise of the ANC.
0: So, Jamie, some some last thoughts because I, I, you're you're the special guest today. Pumi and I get to vent ourselves fairly regularly on this show, but <laughs> you, it's good to have you back on. What are the things that you're most interested in talking about that we might not have covered so far this morning? And and do you want to throw in any other? compliments or, or, or criticisms of, of any of the things you've seen in politics and current affairs this week?
1: Well, I mean, just to quickly respond to uh, Pumi's comments is that, uh, you know, as I don't think that we can adequately know how much support somebody has in terms of how many people are willing to fight for them until it's happening. And it's a risk that I don't think is worth taking. Like, um, it, it's it, there are cards on his chest. And To presume that poor people, because they are focused on their economic personal struggles, don't have a political preference or affiliation can sometimes lead to adverse uh, effects because they may view Jacob Zuma as their guy, you know, and because they're not really doing much anyway with their time, they could be willing to put up a fight for him. And it can become tricky. And this is why I think uh, it's delicate to consider all of these issues. um, And when you look at it from a nation and social cohesion perspective, I think that it does have to be true. It's unfortunate that different people get different treatment in society. But I think that when you consider the, the age of the democracy, 27 years feels long, but it's really short in the bigger scheme of the democratic project. And we have to ask ourselves, in a system that you've just identified, do we have enough shock absorbers to deal with any potential threats to what has been a stable democracy thus far? You know, introducing conflict, introducing, you know, violence into the system on top of everything that is happening may not be worth it. And, and that's why I think mm-hmm. that it has to be treated with the a certain level of diplomacy even though that's undesirable, I think that sometimes we may be underestimating how much organic support Jacob Zuma still has. but even if we are not i i I would rather err on the side of caution and you know do it delicately rather than you know pull off the the band aid so to speak, and have you know something that may not be um, worth it in in the bigger scheme of things. but I wanted to say that um There's been interesting developments in the world of digital media. I don't know if you've been following the fight between Facebook and Australia. Mm. And um, that's something that I I thought maybe would be worth touching because Facebook um, tried to block the Internet and um, block news specifically in Australia as a result of their opposition to this new law that Australia was proposing to have Facebook paying media houses for the um, content that is shared on their platform. Right. So Facebook had shut down the websites that provide news as well as the government um, uh, Facebook pages like for health, mm-hmm. uh, for weather, all of that stuff. So it was an interesting fight. The law has been passed with some modifications, but ultimately the behavior of Facebook in the, the time preceding the passage of the law was, was something that for me was a little bit alarming and I thought interesting to talk about. I think
0: that's a very good point. And and even Mark Zuckerberg seems to be saying that Facebook's business plan going forward is going to be very, very seriously challenged by what's what's going on in Australia at the moment. In fact, I think he put out, let me just see if I can find it, because someone sent me a, a story yesterday. Zuckerberg's business model is stuffed after Australian news ban. It's actually something on YouTube. Um, so Facebook's whole business model now has to be reconsidered, and maybe it's time that uh, Facebook falls apart. Maybe they were the first iteration. Maybe they were the, you know, your test case for how social media can work, and maybe they'll be restructured, and there'll be better beta and and delta versions of these things going forward that might actually do a better job of passing on information and connecting people in meaningful ways.
1: Yeah, I, I hope that there's some kind of restructuring of the business model anyway, because I do think that Facebook sucked up all the advertising revenue, because why would a business go to one newspaper when they can just go to Facebook and Correct. access the whole market of two two billion people? So I do think that there is a, a necessity to think about. If Facebook has taken everyone's advertising revenues and be, has become the dominant player, they, they do have a monopoly along with Twitter and right. um, Google on the digital space. And as we become more and more digital, you know, that monopoly continues to increase. And so as much as I know that, you know, there are concerns from free market thinkers around this kind of a thing. But when you do have a monopoly, that is absorbing all of the oxygen. The environment becomes anti-competitive yeah, and becomes uh, adverse to democracy. Completely. So, I think it's interesting to see what Facebook has done. I, I've just been thinking, how does this all? I mean, Australia and Facebook. I've been thinking, how does this apply to an African context? Because we saw the data from you know radio stations and these digital publications, and not digital print publications, saying they've lost um, you know readership and revenue. And all of that is also because more and more people are consuming their news via Twitter via facebook and you're the one you're
0: the one who said you might want to buy the sabc you go ahead
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i mean the sabc i would buy because it's got enough hit shows and i think legacy audience but when i think about the 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 news side of the business you know sabc uh, news seems to be fine but all of these other community papers all of these other small papers that have been part of um the historic journalistic landscape of many countries are failing to uh, find a way to be sustainable and of quality and re- relevant in a Facebook ecosystem and that's something that I think is just interesting from the media practitioner side of of the perspective to say one what does this mean for Africa and South Africa and two Is this something really that Africa will benefit from or will it be more responsive um, governments? Because we know that the UK is looking at this. We know that the EU has indicated that they're also looking at Facebook very aggressively. Hmm. I don't think the Americans will do much because Facebook has strong lobbies there. But what does that mean for us as Africans? Can we even do anything?
0: Do you have any comments on that, Pums?
2: I'm going to be from the government, I can tell you that. I, I think it's not going to be from the government, you know, as, as a person who operates in the media landscape, I think that in one aspect, in, in, the, in the Western world, Facebook may have this kind of monopoly. But I think for Africa in particular, we still have huge opportunities, we just have to, we just have to think about media differently and the kind of things that we put in our media unfortunately our local media guys still think that they're about breaking the big story and it's that's not where newspapers or media or news is at anymore Mm. i mean i look at the new york times that has been growing exponentially in the time when everybody is saying uh news media is dead and one of the reasons they've been able to do that is because they've they've dealt more with analysis which Facebook can't give you. Facebook can give you the breaking news, they cannot give you the analysis and that's where we need to be. And particularly in the African context, we were speaking earlier about Nigeria and the forces in Nigeria. You're not gonna get that from Facebook. Somebody still has to be out there putting the the local spin and the analysis is what we want from our news media much more than the breaking news story. That breaking news story is eyewitness now. Everybody's yeah. posting Or an, it on or an uninformed,
0: Twitter. unintelligent opinion on Twitter, frankly. You know? Who needs that? <laughs> All right. So listen, Jamie, it's always good to have you on. And I love having you on because I know you and I disagree about like 90% of stuff, which is more exciting for me than having, and Pumi knows this, because we've often had, <laughs> we have guests on, and then, you know, like most of the stuff, I'm going, yeah, 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 you're right, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right, and we have nothing to argue about. It's so boring. So I love having you on. Thank you for being on the show again this morning. It's a great pleasure, to, pleasure. To, to, to share time with you. Uh, Mighty Jamie and Pumi Mashiro. thank you both so much for being part of it, and thank you for listening to The Burning Platform this morning. As always, it's brought to you by Nando's, and they are not afraid to get into controversial territory, one of the reasons reasons that we love them as a brand. They are brave. There are so many corporations and brands and people out there in the in the, in the business environment who are just terrified to put a foot wrong that they never put a foot anywhere. And uh, if we don't talk about these things like the budget and we don't give the analysis, as Pummies just put it, that you can't get from social media, what are we here for? Then we're just another banging drum that nobody cares to listen to.
2: Cliffcentral.com.